It's so good to see you this morning. We're starting a new series about identity theft. Today I'm talking about how we get robbed by relationships. How do relationships rob us? We're going to look into that. People are frustrated with life. What we try to do with relationships, many times it's like taking a square peg and trying to put it in a round hole, and it doesn't fit. So we're unhappy because we're expecting to get something great out of that relationship, and it looks good at the beginning. But then when you're in the relationship, it's not fitting. It's not fitting. And that square peg is like we have that round hole in our heart, that longing for happiness that we think she can fill or we think he can fill it. And then things don't work out. I bet you everybody here has dated somebody that they thought, oh, he's the one or oh, she's the one. And you guys broke up and you're glad you broke up. And you're thinking like, what was I doing with that person? There is a guy named Solomon. He was the richest guy ever. He had every resource available to him. To find happiness, he had everything to find it. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 and 10 and 11, it says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. And in it, it gives a lot of things that he tried out. Then he goes on to say, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Can you imagine that? You have enough resources and everything that you need that you would deny yourself nothing that your eyes desired. Nothing was too expensive. Whatever food you want, you know, anything. It's nothing uh, was out of his reach. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And here's his conclusion. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. The wind. If you really think that thing's going to make you happy, you're wrong. Money's not going to make you happier. It might relieve some stress, right? It does. It relieves stress, you know, but it doesn't make you happy. You could be miserable inside and have more money and pay your bills and still be miserable inside because it's relationships. If those relationships are wrong, it's going to affect you. This guy Solomon had everything his eyes desired. He had the means to do it. He had real estate, mansions, palaces, gardens, parks, reservoirs, music, sexual encounters. He tried everything. Food, the best food, the best wine that you can imagine, the best parties. And at the end, he said it was all meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. I talked last week, I think it was, about how ridiculous it would look if I was trying to catch the wind. Oh, the wind's blowing. I'm trying to jump up and catch it. How stupid I would look. That's what he's saying. He was saying, it was stupid. What was I thinking that this would somehow satisfy me? That money or women or wine or whatever it would be. Wow. You know, or achievements. Wow. I'm so satisfied now. What was I thinking? It's like catching the wind. I ended up with no satisfaction. It was meaningless. It didn't really fill up that empty hole in my heart. Because that hole in your heart is a God-shaped hole, and only God can fit in there. And if I try to find satisfaction with women meeting that need, it's not going to work. With money, it's not going to work. With achievement, the only thing that's going to fill my heart, that God-shaped hole in my heart, is God. 
It's God, Christ. Only he can come in there and fill it. And God wants to. When you commit your life to Christ, and you say, Jesus, come into my life, it's the Holy Spirit that comes in. You know, you don't stand on the scale afterwards, and you weigh 140 or 50 pounds more, and you say, oh, Jesus must have come in. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes into your heart. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart, and he dwells in you. Only God can fill that emptiness. Only his spirit being in you can meet that need. And if you shoot for anything else like Solomon did, you come up dry. You will have temporary happiness. Like you get that job promotion, and it makes you excited until you get used to it. Once you get used to it, then it's just work. Now it's still going back to work. So they give you temporary joy, temporary happiness, but it doesn't meet the longing in your heart. In Proverbs 19.22, it says, what a man or a woman desires is unfailing love. That's what we desire. So what do we do? We turn to one another to get it. And there's only one thing wrong with desiring unfailing love is we're turning to people that have failure. We're turning to people that can never possibly meet that need. Because nobody in this room has unfailing love. We all fail at our love. So we think, oh, this person is just right for me. I'm going to be happy now. And it's promoted by the movies. Movie after movie shows that if you marry the right person, you're going to be happy. You're finally fulfilled. You're finally complete. Life's good. And there's romance novels out there. You know, Barnes & Noble has uh, volumes of them. And you meet the right person. Oh, and now you're happy. And then you get in a real relationship with somebody. And when the newness wears off, it's not true. It's not true. You still have to wash clothes. You still have to clean the toilet. You still have to change diapers. Real life is not really all exciting all the time. And you don't meet one another's needs. And then you listen to the radio, and the love song is so exciting. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from you. I mean, that love is, I want a man like that. I want a woman like that. And that's how they are the first week or two. But it wears off, right? Boy, they'll do anything to be with you until they get used to you, and then it just becomes ho-hum, and all the excitement's gone. Other songs, if you ever leave, baby, you would take away everything good in my life. And then she stays, and then you want her to leave. Because after a while, you get used to her, and you realize, maybe I had more good before she got here. That's the reality. That's the truth. You know why? We're all flawed. I'm flawed. You're flawed. We're all messed up. We're not going to meet one another's needs. Jerry Maguire in, in that movie had three famous lines. Remember, show me the money. You had me at hello. But he also said, you complete me. So in the movie, you get this idea that you can find a woman that completes you. You can find a man that completes you. Okay, Tanya and I, we've been married for eight years. Yeah, isn't it? time has zoomed by, hasn't it? It just seems like we're still on a honeymoon. Eight years. As time has gone by and as I've gotten to know her better, I love her more. I have a deeper love for her. Everything is good. She's a person I want to go home to. 
Like when I'm done with work or something, I'm excited to get home. I want to see her until I get home, and then she says, hey, can you change the diaper? But I, w- I was excited to get home before that time. But I want to see her, right? I'm excited about her. But as much as I love Tanya, she does not complete me, and she can't. And as much as she loves me, I do not complete her. I can't. I can't complete her. She can't complete me. Now, it sounds really romantic and nice if I were to say she completes me. I complete her. But it's just not true in reality. We let each other down. Life doesn't go like that. It's impossible. And it puts an expectation on that other person that's unrealistic and unfair. If I'm expecting her to complete me, I'm putting a pressure on her that she could never do because she would have to be exactly what I want her to be, which would be a robot or a slave. Either way, that's not good. For me to complete her, I'd have to be exactly what she wants, which would be her robot or her slave. That's not good. No one can complete you except for Christ. It's only that relationship with God. Only God can meet your deepest needs. But I can tell you this. If I allow God to meet my deepest needs of love, of security, of significance, of acceptance, of satisfaction, if I allow him to meet my deepest needs, it makes me a giving person toward her. If I don't allow God to meet my deepest needs, I'm going to be empty on the inside, and I'm going to try to get it from her, seek it from her. You know what I call that? I call that a tick on dog relationship. Yeah. Nobody wants that tick. And the problem with marriage is, is too many times it's two ticks and no dog. <laughs> Trying to suck the life out of one another. Can't work like that. Can't work like that. Only God can meet my deepest needs. And then it allows me to love her more unconditionally, even though I won't be perfect, than if I'm not allowing God to meet my needs. I'm going to try to manipulate her to make me happy. And that's what ruins marriages. That's what ruins friendships. That's what ruins relationships. Only God can meet the needs of my heart. Talk about identity theft. Millions of credit cards have been hacked into. People can get your social security number way easier than what you think and use things. This was a story in the paper that said, It was a big, nasty surprise when Siobhan King-Lewis, a 23-year-old single mom from Atlanta, checked her credit report three years ago. She found that someone had opened more than 25 credit card accounts, taken out loans, and filed for a marriage license in her name. King-Lewis says that she tracked down the culprit. It was a former Taco Bell co-worker who used to stay in her house and must have gone through her possessions. Her ex-colleague allegedly had run up $37,000 in charges, including a car that she bought, a plush $1,200 mattress. Siobhan said, it's really scary knowing that someone else has been living my life. Got their credit card information, enough information that she got from them, started using this information to get credit cards, even a marriage license. Why would you get a marriage license in somebody else's name? (laughs) Maybe to get something out of it from the government. I'm not sure what was going on there. But it's scary what can happen. People can steal your identity. Our identity can be robbed 
when, we're, when we don't understand who we are. I see it all the time where people, high school students, will do whatever they can to fit in. They want to be accepted either by a certain group or by a certain guy or by a certain girl. I know kids in high school that are on the right track, but when they like a certain girl, they get off the right track in order to make her happy. I know girls that do the same thing. They get off the right track in order to make him happy. They never smoked a day in their life. They never had an interest in smoking. They fall in love with the girl that smokes, and now all of a sudden they want to smoke. So they can, and these, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, never, never, never wanted it, even talked bad about it. But now that they meet this girl that's hot, and she smokes, and she has an interest in him, all of a sudden he smokes too. The things that people would do, the, thing, the, the values that they would change in their life to fit in, to feel accepted, to feel like I'm somebody, to feel like somebody cares about me. And it's not just kids. It's not just kids. It happens with adults. You know, we'll give up values that we have at work in order to fit in with the crowd. Or we're so concerned about what other people think about us or what other people say about us that we'll give up some values that we believe in in order to fit in so they don't say things about us that make us feel like they're making fun of us. And we're adults. And the same adults that do this can turn at their high school kid and say, don't follow the crowd, and yet turn around and follow the crowd. We're all guilty of this. It's something that's within us trying to fit in, trying to get that square peg in the round hole so I can be happy. Because if people like me, then I'll be okay. And we're still empty. We're still not happy. It doesn't really reach our heart. But we try, we think, we believe that this is going to make me significant. We believe that this is going to make me loved. And if you do that long enough, you know what happens is you get hurt. Because eventually, those people hurt you. And you can be in the healthiest relationship possible. And you're going to still get hurt. You're going to still get hurt. You can have the healthiest marriage, and your spouse is still going to hurt you. And let me tell you this. You can be in the best marriage on this planet, and your spouse will still hurt you sometimes on purpose. And you know what? You will hurt your spouse on purpose too because you're just as bad. Sometimes we say, but they did it on purpose. Yeah? It doesn't surprise me. You hurt them on purpose too. Everybody hurts each other on purpose. Everybody hurts each other by accident. It's we have a sin nature. We're all flawed. We all mess up. None of us are good enough to be perfect. That's why you have to forgive. You're going to be hurt. It's going to wound you. You're going to feel rejected by somebody. You're going to feel disappointed. You're going to feel abused. You're going to be stung by somebody that you expected would never have done that to you. And all that security, all that significance, all that acceptance goes out the door. And you're devastated. And the real problem was believing in a person, a human being that has flaws just like you, believing in a person to be your stable force for your life. Instead of putting your feet on solid ground, Believing in God to be that stable force in your life. Because every person, no matter how good they are, 
they're going to let you down. People let each other down. Good people let each other down. And the Bible says, if we don't understand this right, we get hurt, it turns to bitterness, and it changes who we are. So you can be a, a good person, putting your faith in a person rather than in God, expecting them to make you happy, and then when they let you down, that good person that you used to be is now a bitter person. They're a bitter person. They're angry. They're cynical. They're oversensitive. They wear their, sleeve, their feelings on their sleeves. They're withdrawn. They become selfish, self-absorbed, distant, not trusting, hateful, resentful, bitter. That's what happens to you. When you put your faith in a person and trust in them to make you happy and they let you down, it can turn you into a rotten person. When you put your faith in God and rely on Him and see people as they are, as human beings with flaws, it might hurt you, of course. It might shock you. But your identity isn't based on that person. Your identity is based on God, what He thinks about you, how He feels. I want to talk about how bitterness will steal your identity. In Job 5, 2, it says, Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Resentment kills us. Job says, you are only hurting yourself with your anger. We think, if I'm angry at them, it's hurting them. They probably don't even know that you're angry at them. They probably just don't even care. All the anger does is it just hurts me. It hurts me. There's a high cost associated with bitterness. It will destroy my life. One of the costs is here in your notes. Bitterness in your life causes spiritual blindness. When you're bitter, spiritually you become blind. You're in the darkness. You can't see straight spiritually. Look at this verse, 1 John 2, 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. Why would you hate your brother? Because you never forgave him. You're still bitter. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. It's blinded him. That's what bitterness does. It blinds you spiritually. You can't see. What happens is you can start seeing all their faults and you can't see your own. You can't see your own. Number two, bitterness in your life limits your forgiveness. This is a scary verse if you think about it. Matthew 6, 15. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Whoa. See, everybody wants God to forgive them. them. Like, I want God to forgive me, but I don't want to forgive you. And this says, but if you don't forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. It's going to limit your forgiveness. The amount of forgiveness that you receive. I better be forgiving other people. I want God to forgive me. How about this one? Bitterness in your life affects your prayers. And Marcus says, and when you stand praying. So here's a person praying. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It affects your prayers. How can I be praying to God and not forgive you? How can I pray to God and still have this bitterness in my heart? He's saying, forgive them. Let it go. Don't hang on to that. And you know what your bitterness does? Like I said, it usually never hurts a person you're really angry at. Sometimes if you're in a marriage and you're bitter toward them, it does. Because they're close. Or your children. But a lot of times, the bitterness that you carry with you in life 
from what's happened to you as a child or whatever, you take that into your current relationships and you dump that because you're feeling angry about what's happened to you in life, you dump it on your current relationships. They feel that you're an angry person. They feel that resentment coming out. They feel that bitterness coming out and it chases them away. You're hurting the people that are innocent. It's one thing about this person abused me, but if I hang on to that bitterness and now I'm a bitter, angry person toward you, you didn't do anything to me. That's what it does when you hang on to it, when you don't let go of your bitterness. Bitterness in your life imprisons you. Look at Matthew. Peter asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. We're to let go of bitterness over and over again. Bitterness becomes my own prison. People say things, that person should be locked up for what they did. If you hang on to that bitterness, guess who's in prison? Guess who's in prison? We put ourselves in that prison. We're ruining our own life with that unforgiveness. When I come to church, I want to give my gifts to God. And God says, hang on there. Get right. Get right what? With people. With other people. Get right with other people. He says, leave your gift at the altar and go and get right with that other person. Go get right with that other person. Don't just think, I'm going to give this gift to God and somehow that's going to pay off my sins. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Only Jesus pays off your sin with his blood, with his death on the cross. It's 100% him. But what good is a gift to God if your heart is rotten? What makes our heart rotten? Unforgiveness, bitterness, anger. So we go to that other person, we forgive them. It doesn't mean that that other person is going to do the right thing. What it means is that you're letting it go. So you're not angry, bitter, resentful. You can't control what they do with it. That's on them. It's like this. Shame on them for what they did to me. Shame on me if I keep it. Why would I want to keep it? Bitterness in your life ruins your attitude. Psalm 73 says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. That's changed in his attitude because was he like a brute beast before? No. It was a bitterness that made him like a brute, right? That made him ignorant, like a brute. What's a brute? Somebody like a bully or something? When you're angry, you have a chip on your shoulder because of things people have done, and now you've got bitterness going on, and you bully other people. Why? Because you feel hurt by somebody else. It makes you angry. It makes you bitter. It makes you like a brute beast, ignorant, senseless. Animalistic is what it's saying. Bitter makes you, bitterness makes you animalistic. Why? Because you'll treat people like an animal without thinking. You know, violence. These type of things. It does not make you a healthy person. You're not being guided by the truth of God. It destroys your health too, physically. Bitterness wrecks your health. When you're bitter and angry, it gives you ulcers. You know, it affects your joints. You know, some people have a stiff neck. Sometimes it's just because of their bitterness. 
you know, they're angry and their their joints are uh, because you're tensed up all the time. When you're angry, you're tense, tense, tense. You can't relax. You can't be comfortable. It physically messes you up. You say, that person's a pain in my neck. And they really are. (laughs) You know, they really do become a pain in your neck. Job says, some may stay healthy until the day they die. They die happy and at ease. Isn't that great? But listen to this next part. Others have no happiness at all. They live and die with bitter hearts. What's, What's the difference? The happiness? One person had bitterness in their heart. That's it. That's the only difference. Some may stay healthy until the day they die. It affects your health. They die happy and at ease. Others have no happiness at all. They live and die with bitter hearts. Can you imagine that being on your tombstone? He died with a bitter heart. That's not what I want for my life. That's a horrible way to live. So why forgive? Let's talk about it. Why do we forgive? Number one, it heals you. People say forgive and forget. It's hard to forget. You're not going to... If it was anything significant, you're probably not going to forget it. You can't. God can, but you can't. Forgiveness is not about having the ability to forget it. Forgiveness is letting go of the resentment. You're letting it go so that you heal. It has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with your healing. You're saying, I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to get even. I'm going to trust in God's justice. I'm going to trust that God is just and he's going to work it out. What else can I do? What else can I do? You know, but they hurt me and I'm going to let it go so I can move on and not be a bitter person, not be an angry person, not strike back at other people. Not be too easily angered. There are people that have sometimes hurt you 20 years ago, and they're still hurting you today because you've never let it go. You never let it go. Let me tell you how to let it go. Every time it bothers you, forgive them. And God, I want to forgive them and let it go. And then next time it bothers you, do the same thing. Next time it bothers you, do the same thing. Some things, some wounds are so deep that it's going to take forgiving them over and over and over again. Some, some wounds are so shallow that they do something to you and you forgive them and you never think about it again. Some are so deep that for years and years it might come back up in your mind and heart and hurt you. And it's okay to feel hurt. But when you start getting bitter and angry and revengeful, that's a sign that, oh, I've got to forgive. I've got to forgive. Some things are going to hurt you for the rest of your life. If you allow it to get bitter, angry, revengeful, you've got to let that go. You've got to let that go. That's going to destroy you and and the people that are around you that love you. In Colossians 3.13, it says, you must make allowances for each other's faults, no matter how nasty, mean, or hard-hearted the other person is, and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. God forgave me. I'm going to forgive them. The second thing is it it demonstrates God's unfailing love. It's only by God's grace that I can forgive somebody else that's hurt me. It's only by God's grace. The truth is I don't have the power to do it. 
Everything in me wants to get even. Everything in me, I want revenge. You know, you've heard me say this before, like when, I, when I've been hurt and the Bible says, pray for your enemies. I pray for them. God, he's my enemy. Strike him dead. <laughs> but that's not what it means. Okay? That's not what it means. But that's what I want to do, right? So what I want to do is I've got to forgive them. Now, they might still be punished. They might go to prison. They might have consequences for whatever they did. But I don't want to be an angry person for the rest of my life. I'm not going to allow them to turn me into a brute beast. And you might even have to testify against them in court. And you might be the reason they go to prison for life or even a death penalty in some states. That's on them. But you're not going to be a revengeful person thinking, you know, I want to murder them. I want to kill them. I want to get even with them. You know what you're going to do? Is you're going to let it go and forgive so you get your life back. So you don't become a better person. Solomon said, what a man, what a woman desires is unfailing love. Unfailing love is mentioned 40 times in the Bible. And every time it's mentioned, you know who it's talking about? God. God. It's never talking about, Moses, you had an unfailing love for us. Paul, you had an unfailing love. No, it's always talking about God. Look at Psalms 32.10. Unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Psalms 33.5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. It's from God. Psalms 36.7. How priceless is your unfailing love. People find refuge in the shadow of your wing. Psalm 137, 130 verse 7. Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love and an overflowing supply of salvation. Psalm 17, 7 and 8. Show me your unfailing love in wonderful ways. You saved with your strength those who seek refuge from their enemies. Guard me as the apple of your eye. Guard me as the apple of your eye. That might be a phrase that sounds weird in English. The apple of your eye, like, like, that's the one I love. You're the apple of my eye. That's the one I love. My eye is on you, and I get delight when I see you. That's God saying that to you. That wasn't a woman or a man. It's God saying, you're the apple of my eye. I have delight when I see you. And you say, but wait a minute. I'm one of those guys that mess up. I'm one of those people that sometimes hurt people on purpose. I'm one of those people guilty of all the stuff that we're talking about because if you're in this room and you're breathing, you are. I'm one of the people guilty about, you know, messing up. And yet you're saying, God, that I'm the apple of your eye? And he's saying, yes, you are. See, we all long to be loved, this unfailing love, and it can only come from God. If you really want unfailing love, you're not going to find it anywhere else. You're only going to find it from God. And when you allow him to fill you up, it makes you a more loving person and your relationships will get better because you've changed. See, we try to make our relationships better by changing somebody else. If somebody could fix my wife, we'd be okay. Like change the other person. When you get the unfailing love of God in your heart, the relationship gets better because you changed. Because you change. You're no longer seeking her or him to meet that deep longing. 
you feel filled up with God and it helps you to love them and be more understanding to them because they are no longer your God. You're not relying on them to fill your soul with what only God can fill your soul with. Only God's going to never disappoint you. He's going to be dependable, compassionate. He's going to have an unconditional love. He's a perfect fit for what you need in your heart. That's why everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs God. Only he can meet your deepest need. If you feel empty inside, only God can do it. Some people say, but I'm lonely. Jimmy, I'm lonely. I want to be in a relationship. I'm lonely. That's a legitimate feeling to want to be in a relationship. Isaiah 54, 4 and 5 says, do not be afraid. You'll not suffer shame. Don't fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. If you're single and you're lonely, it's saying, let God meet your deepest needs. You'll end up being a better husband and a better wife in the long run if you meet somebody. Because if God's not meeting my deepest needs and I'm desperate, I'm going to try to suck the life out of you to make me happy. If God is meeting my deepest needs and I'm not desperate, all of a sudden I've just become way more attractive. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. When you let God meet your deepest needs, you become way more attractive. If a guy meets a woman and she's desperate, it chases him away. It does. He starts backstepping. If a guy meets a woman and the woman doesn't need him to complete her, but she loves him, it's not as scary. You're not thinking, oh, it's too much. They're suffocating me. It's a healthy relationship. When two people are that way, it's really healthy. Let God meet your deepest needs. Look at Psalms 68, 5 and 6. Maybe you're going to say something like, my parents never gave a rip about me. They didn't even care if I was born. Well, this says, talking about God, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Let God be your father. Let God be your father. Maybe you, you feel so hurt by things your parents did. Let God be your father. He loves you. He'll meet those needs. Some people have had a horrible childhood. The parents that they had did them wrong. You can hang on to what they did and be bitter and angry for the rest of your life, or you can let it go and let God be your father. If you're trying to please your parents to make them happy, come on, if they're not happy with you by now, they're never going to be happy. Just please God. Live for him. And he's going to love you no matter what. In Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, it says, this is Paul and his prayer. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, God will give you mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand or to grasp, as God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Wow. That's his prayer for you. Why would Paul be praying that you would understand the deep love of God. 
Because most people don't understand it. Most people don't live it this way. You know, a lot of people don't. Some people in church are mean-spirited. Some people in church are judgmental. Some people in church are critical. Some people in church are cynical. Some people in church hurt their own families. And they, what is, what's the problem? They're in church. They don't grasp the love of God. They don't really understand how deep it is. That word, grasp, it means to apprehend, if you read it in the original language. That means capture it. So in other words, it's saying, I want you to capture how deep, wide, long God's love is for you. I want you to capture that. Don't let it get out of your hands. Capture it. Why is he saying capture it? Because most people don't. It's not that God's love isn't there. They don't capture it. They're not even trying to capture it. And they're wondering why I'm a Christian. I asked Jesus into my heart. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. Why, why don't I feel fulfilled? Because we're not capturing God's love. We're not understanding how deep, how wide, how high, how long his love is for you. It says you'll never fully understand it. You'll never totally get it. But you want to get that. You want to focus on that. Paul prayed this because we're missing it. Number three in your notes, it gives you acceptance, security, and significance. Do you remember that movie with Matt Damon? He starts off floating face down to the water. These fishermen pull him out, and they heal a gun wound that he had, a gunshot wound. They revive him. They drop him off on the deck in a city, and he doesn't ever remember being in the city before. But through one clue after another, people know him, and he goes into a bank, and people recognize him, and through that, he finds a safety deposit box, and then in there, he finds money and a gun and about a dozen passports, all with pictures of him on it from different countries and different names. And the whole movie is called Born Identity, but the movie's about a guy that doesn't know who he is, and he's spending that time trying to discover who he is. And that's how we are as Christians sometimes. We don't know who we are. We don't really know that we're a child of God. We don't really know it. We've heard it, heard it a hundred times. But we don't really know that we're a child of God. Because let me tell you what, if you knew you were a child of God, you'd understand how much he loves you. It would affect you differently. But we forget or we don't know that we're a child of God. We'll say, oh, I'm a child of God. But we don't really know it. So we've lost our identity. It's been robbed by us trying to find other things to make us happy because we really don't know the relationship we really have with the Father. John 1, 12 says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the child of God. It's an equation there, like a math equation. Believe plus accept equals child of God. It's a math formula. Did you, you know, do you believe him? What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe he died on the cross to pay off the penalty of your sins? If you believe that, if you believe that Jesus is God coming to earth, died on the cross to pay off the penalty of your sins, now you forgive that you're, now, now you believe that you're forgiven. And then you accept it. God, I accept this free gift. It's like a check. Uh, he gives you a million dollar check and you, 
as long if you don't ever take it to the bank, it's still just paper, right? You know, but you accept it. You know, and then what do you what are you now? Oh, I'm a child of God. Why? Because I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I've accepted that free gift. Why do you accept it? The devil believes that Jesus died on the cross. Come on. I believe Jesus died on the cross. The devil believes Jesus died on the cross. Okay, me and the devil were right together. Does he accept it for his life? No, he rejects it. I believe it, I reject it. I believe it and I accept it. You believe it, you accept it, and now you're a child of God. You're a child of God. If you really understand who you are, it changes the way you live. Assuming that you understand the Father and his love for you. 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. How great is God's love that he would call you his child. Think about the universe. You look up there and there's millions of stars, millions of planets, and we're in just little bitty planet way out here somewhere. And you're one of 7.3 billion people on the earth. And he says, you're a child of God. I know you personally. How much, how great is the love of the Father that lavishes on us that we should be called the children of God? Who am I to be called a child of God? Who am I? I'm a nobody. And God is saying, you're my child. And that is what we are. We talked about being accepted, having security. We talked about having significance. In Christ, I'm completely accepted. These are some phrases from the Bible. I'm God's child. I'm God's friend. I've been justified. I'm united with the Lord, and I'm one in spirit with him. I've been bought with a price. I belong to God. I'm a member of Christ's body, the church. I've been adopted as God's child. He chose me. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I've been redeemed and forgiven of all my sin, and I am complete in Christ. You're accepted. How about this one about your security? I'm free forever from condemnation. That means you're never going to be condemned. I am assured that, God's, that God works all things together for good. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that God will finish the good work he started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I am hidden with Christ. I've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. I can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. I am born of God. The evil one cannot touch me. You're secure. You are secure in God. How about this one? About your significance. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. I am a branch of the true vine. I've been chosen in this life to bear fruit. I'm a personal spirit-empowered witness of Christ. I'm the temple of God. He lives in me. I'm the minister of reconciliation. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I am God's workmanship created for good works. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You're significant. God meets your deepest longings. It's not going to happen through a man or a woman. It's through God. That's when your longings are met. And that's what makes you a better man. That's what makes you a better woman. Allowing Jesus to complete, to complete you, to complete me. 
God has an unfailing love. He proved it on the cross. Today, if you haven't done so, make that math formula yours. Believe, accept it, be a child of God. It's not that God doesn't want you in his family. You know, I have all the reasons I can come out why I'm not good enough to be in that family, but it's not reasons he's making up. He's saying, believe, accept, be a child of God. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray. I'm going to ask everybody here that's with me today, if you've never prayed and asked Christ to be your Lord, if you've never made that commitment, pray this along with me silently. Lord, by faith I believe that you died on the cross to pay off the penalty of my sins, so I do believe I'm forgiven. And Lord, I accept that free gift into my life. Lord, thank you for the free gift that you've given me. And God, from this point on, I give my life to you. Thank you for allowing me to be your child. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.